First Corinthians 15, towards the end of the chapter, let's pick it up, verse, verse 51, where it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this mortal, excuse me, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this blessed hope that we read about here in this passage. Father, the, the sure hope that we have if we are a child of God, that someday the Lord Jesus will return for his own. And Father, thank you for that assurance we have because of the cross of Christ. Thank you, Father, that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, was willing to come in his great love for us and bear our sins on his body on the tree. Thank you that he didn't stay dead, but he rose victorious, and we can enjoy life because he lives. We can enjoy eternal life because, because he paid for our sins and rose again. And Father, thank you that on that basis you offer us the forgiveness of eternal life. And Father, we gather together to celebrate him once again today to remember our Lord Jesus Christ, to learn of him, to be taught of him. And Father, we pray as we open your word that we might recognize that your word, the Bible, is, is the source of truth, the basis of truth, the unchanging truth, because you are the unchanging God. And Father, may we base all thought, opinion, life, and practice on thus saith the Lord. And thus, Father, we come before you today to open your word together, to, to learn it together, to be taught of you together, that you might teach us how you'd have us to live. You might give us the right perspective towards life, that we might find in it the, the resources you've given us in Christ in order to navigate life here. And so, Father, prepare our hearts to hear your word today. Prepare the, to list the teacher and the listener that you might accomplish the work you're, you're seeking to do amongst us even today. And, Father, we pray for those, are, those, those that are here this morning, that, Father, you might direct in our steps as we go our separate ways, that we might walk in your word, that we could be uh, a family of, of believers celebrating our Savior together but serving him together in our lives, that we might enjoy, our fe enjoy fellowship together, service together. And, Father, we pray for those who aren't here. We think especially of even Nancy Schrock this morning, Father, and her need. Father, just pray that you'd watch over her caregivers, her recovery, Father. May she find comfort in your promises and even in the prayers of those around her and the presence of your very person, Father. Thank you that you are present help in trouble. We came here to your care. And Father, for others, maybe here or away from us who are, who are struggling with various needs, Father, that you watch over each one. And thank you that you are a faithful Father who cares for your children. And Father, we do pray as well, wherever your word is going out today, we pray that it would go out in truth. And as believers, we'd, be, we'd faithfully respond to the things you would teach us today, that we might shine as a light in this increasingly dark world. Father, help us to be bold, to bring the message of the love of Jesus, of the good news of the gospel to those around us. And so, Father, be glorified as we worship and study and sing your praises together today. May you be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Leviticus 23, way back to the, towards the beginning of the Old Testament. You might say Leviticus 23 is a big jump from our scripture reading from 
1 Corinthians 15 and Leviticus 23, but we have been looking recently at the Feast of Israel and how they're fulfilled in the person of Christ. And, and, the, and the significance of that was, is really, or the springboard to that was our celebration of, of the uh, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, the death of Christ and his resurrection, because it's something we celebrate every day. But, but the Bible takes the Old Testament and pulls it into, this, in, into the New Testament experience. It, it is fulfilled by type. In the, in the picture of the Feast of the Old Testament in the person of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, as well as in his church. And so Leviticus 23 lists the seven major feasts or celebrations of Israel. They were meant to teach Israel, to remind Israel, sometimes to celebrate things God had done for them. And we find fulfillment of them in the New Testament, and thus they become very significant. And it's interesting, as I said last time, that what you really see is God establishes practices in the Old Testament, these celebrations that, that are meant for the, to teach the children of Israel certain biblical truths and dynamics, we see them carried over in experience and fulfillment in the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, meaning that our God's a consistent God, isn't he? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The principles he establishes in the Old Testament are carried out through the new. Morality never changes. Righteousness never changes. And the way God deals with his people, though it may, different, may have different economies, through which he manages his people, the, the principles underneath it are still the same. And so we see the wisdom of God. And it's really amazing when we see what Israel maybe had at, 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 in their experience that at that time, little understanding or clue of how these types, these pictures were going to be fulfilled. And yet we can look back at both the festival and the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and take much encouragement from that. We come in chapter 23 to the third feast, the Feast of first fruits. And so let's go ahead and read the, the text here, the instructions here given to Israel, starting with verse 9. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf on the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. The grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until that same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And so we see here God detailing to them. God's always gave them very detailed instructions. And what we see here, if we just kind of pick a few details out of this context, is that this was something that Israel was to do when they come into the land in verse 10. It wasn't to begin until they were settled in the, in the promised land. And we know the promised land that God promised to Israel, we've seen this in our study of the Sabbath, is, is a picture of the rest we have in Christ, of the relationship we have with, with Christ. And so as they enjoyed the promised land, the place of rest and relationship with their God, they were to observe this feast. And they were, they were told as well in verse 10 that they were to bring this, this sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest of the priest. Now this this harvest apparently was the barley harvest. It was uh, what's harvested this time of, that time of year, and the, and they were to bring the first heads when they first begin to head out and be mature. They were to put a sheaf together and they were to bring it to the priest. 
And the priest then, in verse 11, was to wave the sheep before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. And so the sheep waved us before the Lord, and that was symbolic to Israel. Remember, Israel was very much a sign people. Symbolism meant a lot to them. And it signified a couple of things to them. And as we see in this context, that, that they were to first honor the Lord before the harvest. Therefore, they were recognized that God is the one who provides the harvest. That lesson is taught throughout the scriptures. We saw that in, even in the Feast of the Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath they would celebrate meant that even if there was vegetables to be, to be picked and put away in the garden, when it, became, when it came, turned 6 o'clock on Friday, they were to stop whatever they were doing. And then, you know, in our minds, you know, our, our minds is whether you're a farmer or a gardener, you're thinking, well, you know, another hour and I can have this done. And I won't lose it. It might rot over the weekend. And God says, no, stop. And God wanted to remind them that ultimately it was, it was him that provides for our needs. Him that brought the rain, made the seed grow, and, and produced the harvest for them. And that was a reminder. And then they were to give to God first. It was the first fruit. It was the first thing of the harvest they were to bring to him. Picturing that, that wonderful principle throughout the scriptures that we're to put the Lord first. And sometimes that seems inconvenient to us. Both of these concepts are inconvenient at times, but they're inconvenient to our own logic. They're normal to the believer who's put their trust in God to provide. Now this was to happen the day after the Sabbath, according to verse 11. It says, the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now you might ask, which Sabbath? Well, we find that this feast follows and is actually celebrating it in Israel an association or conjunction with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this, apparently, this Sabbath was the first Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You remember, Jesus was the Passover lamb who died on what we call Good Friday. He died in a, on the day of the, the selection of the Passover lamb. And he rose again on, on the third day, the day after the Sabbath, and it's that day that they were to observe this feast. That's the Sabbath what we call Resurrection Sunday, or Easter, if you prefer that vernacular, that's the day that they were to celebrate. So this is a conjunction. Even though it was a separate feast, it was those, these feasts were held in conjunction together. And that would put the feast on, according to the Jewish calendar, the religious calendar, on Sunday the 15th, on the day after the Sabbath. Now, Verse 12 and 13 lists the offerings they were to offer on that day. There was a male, a male lamb, grain offerings, and a drink offering that accompanied it. And lastly, we see in verse 14 that they were part of this, this feast was a, pro, was a prohibition. They were, they were told not to harvest their grain or in, in the corners of their fields so that they could feed the poor. Verse 14 says, Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> they were prohibited from eating that grain until it was first offered to the Lord. I'm actually into the next feast already. Sorry about that. If I look at my notes, I'd keep on track. They were prohibited from eating that grain until it was first offered to the Lord. You shall neither eat, eat bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. And so it establishes the idea of giving to God first. And much like Matthew 6.33, which says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, in all his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. It reminded them 
that every good gift is from above, and that God will supply our need, and we have to entrust ourselves to him. And this just becomes a picture of many areas in the Christian life in which God gives us instructions which we might not always like. It might not be convenient. It might not seem right. It, you know, and sometimes in our own lives, our own self-preservation instinct kicks in, and it seems to contradict what God's asking me to do. And who, it comes down to who are you going to trust, my self-preservation instinct or the word of God or the God of the word. And that's what would occur oftentimes during this feast as well. And when we're in God's hands, we're in good hands, aren't we? Well, let's go to the New Testament. Those are the basic details of the feast. Let's go over to the New Testament because I told you that the New Testament pulls this feast as well into the experience of Jesus in the, er in the, in the church. And we find that in the resurrection chapter. And, we, and we, that's significant because you remember, this feast was celebrated on what we now call Resurrection Sunday, on the day Jesus rose from the dead. And the New Testament makes that analogy. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so there we have it. The new, the, that word firstfruits, in the mind of the Jewish reader, would reach back to that festival and, re, and remind them. This is the feast of the first fruits. Jesus was the first fruits, and they understood what the first fruits was. It was a feast they celebrated. It was the bringing the 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 sheaf of barley to the priest so we could wave it so we could eat. You might say, we couldn't eat until the, the priest had that sheep until he waved it, and they honored the Lord before they could partake of the the harvest. And they would understand that Jesus that terminology here when we they read here that Jesus has become the first fruits of the, those who have fallen asleep in reference to his resurrection. Now with Christ is risen from the dead. And so what the Bible's teaching us here is that Jesus was the first one to rise in a resurrected body, to rise, to die no more. Now we have accounts, not only in the Bible, but throughout history of people being resuscitated to die again, but resurrection is different, isn't it? Jesus arose to die no more into a, into a glorified body, and the Bible says he's the first one. He was the first fruits of that. And so this terminology ties it to the feast, the Passover. Jesus was our Passover lamb. The unleavened bread, this feast of unleavened bread represents a righteous standing we have in Christ when we trust Christ as our Savior. And then he arose in the feast of first fruits, resurrection Sunday, the first one to rise from the dead. And that's a fact. N notice the terminology says, now Christ is risen from the dead. And it's stated as a biblical fact. And there are those today who try to explain away the resurrection. There were those in Jesus' day who tried to explain it away. Oh, they stole the body, or they are mistaken, or maybe he never really died, and he wandered away somewhere never to be found again, whatever the case may be. And even today, people try to explain it away as fallacy. Yet if you turn back, look back in chapter 15 here, in verse 5 it says, And that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve, and he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And then he was seen by James and by all the apostles. And last of all, he's seen by me, Paul says, one born out of due time. And that's quite a body of witnesses. And any trial you might have, when you have this, you know, between five and 600 witnesses, it's pretty much an established fact, isn't it? That Jesus arose from the dead in his glorified state. He is risen from the dead. And that's so important for us. Now, we might not need all the, all the witnesses that are recorded here because we're going to believe God's word. But the fact is, it's an important fact because it's the key 
to our salvation. And so it says here, he is risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed on. A term the New Testament uses for death. Maybe some of your versions um, use a different term, describe it as death, but Jesus becomes the first, first one, to rise in a glorified state. And you say, well, what does that mean for me, you and I? Well, we understand today that when we die, our spirits enter the presence of the Lord or into Hades or hell. That's what the Bible teaches. We as individuals are described in the Bible as a three-part being. We have a body, soul, and spirit. Our body is what the Bible calls our tent, the house that houses the real us. It's funny how much time we spent on this rather than on what's in here because the real us is in here, the soul and spirit. The soul is that part of us that helps us relate to life on earth. It's our intellect, it's our emotion, it's our will, it's how we relate to things on earth. The spirit is, is what relates to God. And so people are born into this life dead to God. They're dead spiritually. They're, they're alive physically. They have a soul. They relate to things on earth, but they're dead to God. That's how we're born into life. And when you trust Christ as your Savior, we receive new life. We're born from above. We are regenerated, as the Bible calls it. We are born again. And then as we face life, when you, tr when, when, when you pass on, whenever that date might be, we enter the presence of the Lord. Or if one hasn't trusted Christ as a Savior, he, he, de he departs into Hades or hell. But our bodies, that part of us, goes back to dust, doesn't it? At the present time. Ecclesiastes 12.7 then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's putting it much simply, which I just took five minutes to try to explain. Our, our, the spirit returns to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4 through 8, it says this, For we who are in this tent do groan, being burdened. And the older you get, the more you groan, believe me. Not because we want to be unclothed. Now, that gives a different perspective. Paul's saying here, it's not that we want to be rid of the aches and pains. Instead, Paul states this in light of an anticipation. He says, I want to be further clothed, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Paul says, I have an anticipation that I'm going to have a better body. And so he wanted to get out of this tent, not simply because of the aches and pains, but because he, because he looked forward to that time when our body would be immortal. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing, it goes on to say, is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee so we are conf always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so at this present time, our bodies return to the dust and the spirit returns to God. And yet the time is coming when we will follow our Savior. Because Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. He was the first one who rose from the dead to secure our victory. Let's go on here, and there's more to this analogy. Verse 21 says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For since by man came death. Who was that? Adam. Adam. The Bible tells us, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And that death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And no matter how cute our itsy-bitsies are, they're born into this world in a state of corruption, in a state of separation from God. They're born dead to God. No matter how pretty, pretty the smile, how, how blue the eyes, they're born separated from God. That's just a fact. 
because since by man came death. And that's the race we belong to, the human race, the sinful race, so we're all the same. We are separated from God because of, because of sin. But then by man came the resurrection of the dead. And so there's another man. Who's that? Jesus. Another man. Came, comes the resurrection of the dead. And now he's reaching beyond his resurrection. Verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now this, isn't, this is referring to our bodies. And it goes on to say, But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Christ was the first fruits, and afterwards, afterwards, there's a harvest, a harvest of those who have put their faith in Christ. And you and I sit here this morning in one of two places, especially if you look at verse 22. You're either in Adam, dead, and sep- dead to God, separated to God, though you're alive physically, you might have a soul, you might enjoy life, love life, have a good life. Nonetheless, apart from faith in Christ, we are separated from God for all eternity. But in Christ, we're made alive. In Christ, we have a relationship with God. In Christ, we receive new life, the forgiveness of sins, as we put our faith in him. And we sit in one of those two places today. But if we are in Christ, we can, ful- we can, in- we can rejoice in verse 23 that there's an order. Christ the first fruits, and afterwards, there's a harvest. The harvest continues, just like in the barley harvest. It meant the first fruits were just the first few heads, and then there's going to be a harvest after that. And that's what God's doing today. Remember Jesus says the fields are white, ready to harvest? Same analogy. There are those who need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can come to Christ as Savior, so they can look at, this, at, this, at eternity with this anticipation that there is going to be a harvest of bodies that are going to be like His. You know, Jesus himself said in his, when he's on the earth in John 12, verse 23, he says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He's illustrating his life. He was going to die for our sins and rise again, and he was going to produce much grain, much fruit, much harvest in reaching the lost for Christ and bringing them to a right relationship with God. And so you might ask then, well, what's that body going to be like then? Is it, are we going to be like, you know, like, like now? Am I really going to have this gray hair through all eternity? You know, I picture a glorified body being a lot more slimmer than the one I'm carrying about now. Well, the Bible doesn't get into those details, but it does tell us this. If we jump down t- here to verse 42, where it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. That's a distinction. Right now our body's corruptible, it's going to die. Our new body, if you're a believer here this morning, is going to be incorruptible. That means if you're in a medical field, you're going to be out of business when this occurs. There'll be no doctors, no nurses, no vaccines in heaven. It's incorruptible. Verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, that's a living soul, that the last man, Adam, became, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. 
The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, you and I. And is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Well, there's not a lot of details as far as our physique is concerned, but we understand here very clearly that we're gonna, we are going are going to inherit an incorruptible body that, that reflects him. We're going to be made in his image. And I like to think that in some ways that resembles what was lost in the garden because we are made in the image and likeness of God, weren't we not? Let us make man in our image and likeness, God said. But that image was tainted because of sin. It's going to be restored here in the resurrection when we receive a body that is like him. And 1 John 3 tells us that when we see him, we're going to be like him for we're going to see him as he is. I don't think we're going to all look identical, but we're going to be similar. Not identical. We're going to have a glorified body. When Jesus was on the earth, he had a glorified body before he ascended to his Father. Yet he enjoyed a meal with them. He had fellowship with them. They could touch and feel him. And though we'd had a lot of details, the important thing is, is in the consummation of our salvation, even our bodies are going to be rescued. Because we know now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when we die, when, in, when the time comes for us to pass on, if you're a believer, you know you're, gonna, you're going to slip into the arms of Jesus. You're going to be in his presence. But someday, that salvation we consummated when the day comes for us to receive a resurrected body. Now, when is that? Well, let's go on. Let's jump down to verse 50. Here, I guess that's where we left off. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall all be changed. Now, he's referring to believers here. He's writing to the church at Corinth, saints that are at Corinth. It tells us way back in chapter 1. And he says, we're all going to be changed. There's a change coming. And you won't need to go on any special diet or program or fitness workout. He says, we're going to be changed. And it's going to happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, which is pretty quick, at the last trumpet, so there's going to be a series of trumpet calls, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put, put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has been put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass, a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. See another facet of this. Let's go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 saying the same thing, but I think it will maybe expand our understanding of when this is going to occur. There's going to be a day coming. It's going to be in a moment. It's going to be a twinkling of an eye. There's going to be trumpets sounding. And even the dead that are already in the grave are going to be raised. Notice here, First Corinthians, excuse me, First Thessalonians chapter 4, says, verse 13 says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed on, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, what is that about? Well, there was a problem in the early church that, that they so anticipated the resurrection, the fact that they were going to be rescued and redeemed and taken to glory, that, that they didn't realize it was going to be a period of time. In fact, now 2,000-some years, years period of time before that would occur. And they thought that, well, what's going to happen to, you know, my, you know, my great aunt passed on, and she's going to miss the resurrection. She's, she's passed on. And, and, uh, and Paul here is reassuring them. 
You don't have to sorrow as those who have no hope. Those who died outside the Lord don't have that hope. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. He says he's not going to leave them out. He's not just coming back for those that are alive on the earth. He's going to take with him those who sleep, those who are passed on. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, this is what he taught, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, they're going to, they're going to come along with us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Okay, that's an added bit of information. There's going to be a shout. The voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God. Now we know that there's going to be a trump. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now some people say it's because they have six feet farther to go to catch up with us. They're going to rise first. And then we which are alive to remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds that meet the Lord in the air. And this, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that's why this is a word of comfort to them. Those that passed on won't miss the resurrection. It was something greatly anticipated by the early church, and it's something we should anticipate today. Now, when you search all these passages in regards to the rapture, as we call it, this, the, the, the day of our resurrection, you don't find, we don't find a, 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 a scheduled time, do we? In fact, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples, you know, you, you know, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but it's something that could happen any moment. The Bible teaches it in such a way that it could happen today, before we're done here. And if you're worried about the preacher, preacher stopping on time, well, the rapture could occur to shut my mouth before, that we before noon even rolls around. It could happen in a moment. That's the teaching of the Bible. It's that anticipation that we are encouraged to live with. And therefore, when we consider this picture, this analogy, the feast, the first fruits, in which they would honor the Lord with the first of their barley harvest, the New Testament brings that illustration to the point where we realize, when we begin to realize we're the harvest. He's talking about we're the harvest. Jesus was the first fruits, but afterwards, they that are Christ that is coming that we're going to be with him when that day comes when he calls for his own. And that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing. It's something we can look forward to. In fact, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, it's reality. It might seem surreal. I mean, we live in a world of, of you know, sci-fi movies and video games and and that's in some ways done damage to the things of the spirit, things of the word of God, because sometimes we put the word of God in that fable category, where this is just so real, so beyond our imagination. This is like watching a, you know, hearing a sci-fi movie that it's not real, but this is real. Jesus is returning someday for his own. In fact, it goes on. If we go back to verse 24, we kind of left off there a little bit after Verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then, it continues, it tells us. Then comes the end. You know, there's an end to every story, and there's going to be an end to the corruption of this earth. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. When is that going to happen? That's the tribulation period that's going to follow the rapture, when Christ returns for his own. 
He's going to put an end to rule, all rule, authority, and power because it's pretty obvious if you look around us, rule, authority, and power pretty much have risen up against the things of God. And the God's gonna, there's going to be a day when God's going to judge this world. And if you read the book of Revelation and all that stuff that's hard to understand, what's perfectly clear is God is going to rain down terror in judgment upon this earth for two reasons. One is to judge this Christ-rejecting world, and the second is to give the residents of this world an opportunity to turn back to him, to recognize him as their creator and especially as their savior. So that's going to be the end. And so the rapture is the beginning of the end, is what he's telling us. When we're harvested, when we go to be with the Lord. And he, he's going to put an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. When's that going to happen? Well, following the tribulation period, Jesus returns in that final battle of Armageddon, as we know, know it, and sets up his kingdom. He's going to reign. And then the world's going to be ruled in righteousness. That's the time when the lion will eat down with the lamb, when they beat their spears into plowshares and so on. There'll be no conflict and no war. And it's going to be a time of peace and prosperity, at least at the beginning, for that thousand-year reign of Christ. And he's going to reign. And then the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, what this describes is God's program to rescue and restore fallen humanity and the creation. Romans 8 tells us that even the creation groans and travails waiting for the redemption of God's children. They're waiting to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. God didn't invent this earth to have vegetation that dies. He didn't, he didn't invent, create death. It's a result of sin. He didn't create the chaos we see around us in, in life. And God's rescue program is occurring. And people sometimes ask, why isn't God intervening? And usually that's when people look at the big picture of the way this world is going, or sometimes the little picture of what's going on in their own lives. Why isn't God stepping? Why didn't God help me do something about it? And the, and the answer is he is on his timetable. And the biggest solution he, he offered was the, was the primary need of man, was that of eternal salvation from hell and from the clutches of sin, which Christ accomplished on the cross and offers to everyone freely. And someday God's going to complete the program. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter. If you would, 2 Peter chapter 3. God's going to complete the program of bringing his creation back under his rule and authority. And it's going to be a blessed time. No more sickness, death, tears, crying, and so on, Revelation tells us. And that's why for the believer, life is a delight. Because when we bring ourselves under the direction of our creator who created us, who wrote the instruction book, we find rest, free from the conflict of our own consciences when we are willing to walk in right relationship with our God. Verse 13, well, let's back it up a little bit. Verse 10 says, For the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. <coughs> now, that, you know, that's, that doesn't sound like you really want to be living on the earth at that time, does it? That's going to be the culmination of God's restoration. Both the earth and its works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these, these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in only holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's going to be the end. And see, this, this, this fulfillment of the type of the Feast of first fruits was just one aspect of God's program to restore righteousness to our existence. It's a righteousness we're going to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. It's something we could greatly look forward to. You know, when, when you consider these things, the end times, that was a quick summary of the end times. Our resurrection, we call the rapture, when Jesus comes for his own. The tribulation that follows, the kingdom, and then the destruction and the re reinventing of this heavens and recreation of the heavens and earth. The Bible gives us that information, not just so we'll have an idea what is in the future, not just so we'll know that God is a God who is in control and he is going to accomplish his purposes, but he leaves out this challenge. In the, in, in the middle of this passage, we Peter throws this at us in verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in our holy conduct and godliness? That's a challenge. This is a reality. In fact, verse 14 goes on with that theme, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and so on. I think there's a, there's a challenge here to two categories of people, to the lost, be found in him. Be rescued, be delivered, be saved from your sins, be assured of eternal life. And then as Christians, it's a challenge to how ought we to live if these things are, are real. This is real. This isn't a sci-fi novel. This is the word of God. This is reality. This is what's going to happen. Whether the world likes it or not or knowledge it or not, this is going to happen. And the question, the normal question, it it's, it's, it's should be the obvious question, how then shall we live? You know, you hear once in a while people stating that if you, were, if you knew the date of your death, if you knew you are going to die in seven days, what's seven times 24? 168 hours. How would you live? What would you do? You know, your bucket list doesn't look quite so important anymore, does it? Now, selfishly, you might think, well, I want to experience this, that, and the other thing before while I'm still here. Or in reality, we might look, think, look around you if you're a believer and think, how many people have I not told about the Lord Jesus? There's an urgency, isn't it? When we, when we keep these things in mind, and that's why the Bible holds this harvest in front of us. The fact that Jesus could come at any moment and we're told to redeem the time. It's a question that we need to answer between us and God when we read this verse. God, okay, God, this is the question you gave me. I need to answer it on my knees before you humbly in prayer. In fact, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe we'll just close up here. We find, as we read in our scripture reading, the end of this chapter, the same charge. We're charged with things when we consider our resurrection, our new bodies. Therefore, verse 58, after that we declare victory in verse seven, 57, and verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, the devil would have us approach life that we're here to get all the gusto we can get while the getting's good. And that's the bill of sale he sells humanity. And so we work towards those ends. And we have very, our definition of, definition of gusto is different in all of our experience, but that's what Satan sell, sells us. But when we consider reality, the fact that we are created by God, we're lost to God, 
and yet redeemed through the Lord Jesus Christ with an end in view. Then comes the end. To realize that things here are temporal. It puts this kind of urgency on our feet, doesn't it? To be steadfast and unmovable, bounding in the work of the Lord. Because many, And the more we share Christ with, the more that can we can join in the harvest. The more you're going to see when that time comes, if you happen to be on the earth when Jesus comes back and you see those come out of the grave to join you or whether you're the ones that get to start first from the graves and join those that are alive, and you can see those people affected for Christ. That's what's going to matter, isn't it? That's what's going to be important. That's the urgency the Bible puts before it. You know, when John, Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and he says, and I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself, the picture is that of a Jewish wedding. And in the Jewish tradition, in the or- tradition of the Orient, they, the bride, excuse me, the groom and his party would come once they had the bridal chamber ready, he would come for his bride, and, 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 and the idea was that she should be waiting with anticipation, not off, you know, shopping, you know, at Kohl's. You know, not off occupied with other things, but she wait every day with anticipation. And weddings, I think, generally occurred in the evening. So in the evening, they they were to be ready. You know, to have their their waists girded and so on, their suitcase packed and be ready. And that's the illustration Jesus used in John 14. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but then I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. Are you living life watching and waiting in light of His return? Are we redeeming the time? Let's pray. Father, thank you for. The lesson we learned today, Father, thank you that these Old Testament feasts, which seem so distant and, and, and really unapplicable to us today, yet have a spiritual fulfillment in our Savior, Father, for truly he did rise from the dead and became the first one to whom he secured our eternal future, that we're not only saved from sin and its penalty and power, but our very bodies will be transformed. It'll become like his as we receive an incorruptible and immortal body. Father, thank you for that hope that we have, the blessed hope of being, seeing our Savior, being with him, and being like him. For you have a wonderful future planned for those who know you as Savior. And Father, for any here who do not know Christ as Savior, pray that they would consider what Jesus has done for them. Now he not only died for them, was buried, but rose victorious and wants to give life, share his life for all eternity with those who would trust him by faith. And may they come to that decision even today. And so, Father... We pray that the things we learn today might instruct us and challenge us. And Father, help us to live with that urgency. Help us to live with our shoes on, our bags packed. Help us to look around us and see people not in light of how convenient they are to us, but rather as those who need to hear the good news so they can become part of the harvest. May we uh, give us that boldness and the love of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name.